today is Pentecost Sunday. And so our passage of scripture this morning is Acts chapter 2. It's this really weird story. And if you grew up in the 70s or 80s, it's hard to hear it without thinking about Indiana Jones. This strange wind and this fire and speaking and tongues and what in the world is this stuff all about? What I want to do this morning is um, I, I, I want to show you how very often in Scripture you'll arrive at something that, it, that if you open it up, it's like opening a window onto the entire story of the Bible. This is one of those passages. This is one of those parts of the Bible story. The Bible tells a single story. It's complicated. It's complex. It's long. It's fascinating. It's filled with all sorts of genres of literature. But there are these moments in the story where if you haven't been tracking the story from the beginning, you're really off balance. This is one of those. This is one of those moments that both you need the whole story in order to understand it. And if you open this particular passage up, it shows you the whole story. So I'm going to try to do that this morning. And to do that, we need to go all the way back to the first page of the Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to the very first page. Genesis chapter 1. The very first sentence of the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you've been around incarnation for very long, you've heard me say multiple times, heavens and earth. This is a technique of poetry called a merasmus. It's where you take terms of extreme to indicate the whole. So if Janelle were to say to me, as she does all of the time, I love you from head to toe, this means I love everything there is about you. If I were to say to Janelle, I love you day and night, this is terms of extreme to say, I love you all of the time. That's a Erasmus. We still use it in, in our language today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means God made everything that exists. It means nothing exists that God did not make. And then the most repeated phrase in Genesis chapter 1, some of you who've read the Bible before, do any of you know what the most repeated phrase in the first page of the Bible is? It is good. It is good. Seven times God looks out at what he's made and he says, man, that's good. I love that. Seven times he says it's good. Now, if you read Genesis chapter 1 and you read it like an English literature major and you're paying attention to the texture of the story, it reaches its highest point in verse 27. In verse 27, the key verb of the first verse, in the beginning God created, the verb create, in Genesis 27, this, word, this verb comes back, and it's used three times. And if you're familiar with the Bible, three is a fairly important thing. It was the people who wrote this part of the Bible. They were Hebrew. They didn't have the EST ending for words, like 
baldest, the most bald, okay? So if they wanted to make a superlative, they couldn't add an ending to a word, E-S-T. They would repeat the word three times. So in Isaiah 6, if you're familiar with it, when, when the angels cry out about God, holy, 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 that's their way of saying he is the holiest. So because of that, and because of several other issues, whenever you find a quick repetition of three, it's often meant to be like a highlighter to the reader. Pay attention. This is pretty important. So when you get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This word create. Here is the creation story reaching its high point. Humans are created. It's the high point of creation. And they're different than everything else God has made. And what is it that makes them different? They bear the image of God. Nothing else bears God's image. Everything else bears God's thumbprint. But nothing else images him. Humans do. Now why? Why does God, when he's making all of this stuff that's so good... It's all good. Why does he suddenly kind of ratchet it up? Why does he make a thing, a part of creation, that bears his image? What's his reason for doing that? It's because he gave humans his job. That's what his image is for. His image is to do what he does. What is this unique job that he gives humans? It's to bring his goodness and his wisdom and his loving care to bear upon the raw materials of his creation. And it's it's to draw out of his creation all of its potential because that's what he's been doing. And it's not only to act toward creation like the creator does. It's also to reflect back to the creator the praises of the creation. So one way to think about this is that God made humans to be angled mirrors. They reflect the wise, beautiful, loving, just, caring wisdom of the creator into the creation. And they reflect the the praises of the creation back to the creator. This is what he made humans for. This is the job of the human. This is the human vocation. At the heart of the story the Bible tells is that humans are made to be royal priest. Priest. That's our job as humans. Our vocation means that we are made to worship God and to bring the worship of creation to God. But we're not just priests, we're royal priests. We're ruling priests. We're also meant to act like the high king in being good, kind, wise, faithful, creative stewards of creation. We have a royal aspect to our vocation, an authority aspect, a ruling aspect, a leading aspect, and we also have a priestly aspect. This is what it means to be a human. To sum up the praises of creation before the face of God, To live lives of worship, of thankfulness, and gratitude to God as we move out through his world. Walking through his world as priests. We're also to be royal. 
to function as children of the high king. You see, this earth was designed to function and flourish under the stewardship of the image bearers. So God made us to celebrate and worship and procreate and take responsibility within this rich and vivid developing life of this world. God made humans to take responsibility and to exercise authority within creation and over creation. We are royal priests. We're called to responsibility within the world and authority over the world. This is what makes us different than every other thing that exists. That's Genesis 1. Notice how it plays out in Genesis chapter 2. Here we see that Gilbert read this passage to us. Here we see Adam placed in a garden. But don't think of this like my backyard raised beds, my vegetables. I put leeks in the other day. First time growing leeks. We'll see how this goes. No, 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 no. You need to think of this garden like a major, massive national park, right? It's massive. It's huge. It's got four rivers flowing through it. Lots of trees and animals. And notice what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now that word work, it means disciplined work. The word keep, it means concentrated attention. The Lord God put Adam in this garden to be a royal priest. And this was the way his royal priesthood played out. See, everything I said in Genesis 1 was all abstract. You're a royal priest. But how? Well, this is Adam's royal priestliness. It's to be a gardener in a particular section of the creation. So, you arrive... At the end of verse 15, and Adam's got this incredible job to do. Now suppose, just suppose, that God took Jesse Trainum and plopped her down in, um, I don't know, Yosemite. Take care of this, Jesse. Right? This is massive. This is huge. So it makes absolute sense that we get to verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, and it says what? Not good that he's by himself. Right? This is way too big for him. Notice it does not say it's not good that he's lonely. It says it's not good that he's alone. Why is it not good to be alone in the story I'm telling? Because the job is too stinking big. Because he can't pull this off by himself. In fact, it has nothing to do with loneliness. Because the solution is what? Is anybody following along in the Bible? So what does it say down in verse, what does it say at the bottom of verse 18? God is going to make a companion for him. That would be the solution to loneliness. A helper. Because the problem is he's inadequate. The issue is not loneliness. Is loneliness serious? Absolutely. It is the ubiquitous human challenge. It's just not the one being dealt with here. The one being dealt with here is a really big job, and he needs another set of hands. 
He needs a helper. It is not good that he's alone in Yosemite, so I will provide a helper for him. So there's little old Adam, middle of this massive park, can't do it on his own, needs help, so God provides a helper. And what can Adam do with this helper? Oh, a feast awaits, right? Just imagine all the potential in that original national park. Imagine all the incredible potential for that it, since then we've seen play out in horticulture. Imagine all the massive potential that lay dormant within that park that we've seen play out since then in areas of technology and organization and community and beauty and food. All the feasts that awaited them. That's what humans were made for. Now you have to hold that in your mind. If you're going to read Acts chapter 2. Let's turn there. Let's turn to the book of Acts and let's treat it like we just treated the book of Genesis. Let's start in the first chapter. And let's notice how the first chapter can help us with the second chapter. Acts chapter 1. If you need to use your table of contents, go for it. Find Acts chapter 1. Now in Acts chapter 1, here we find Jesus... Talking to the church. And it's a little bitty church. It's just a handful of people. And, and look what he says to them down in verse 8. He says, you've got a job to do. Your job is to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem. In all Judea and Samaria. And anybody know this verse? What? Ends of the earth. Now, don't you feel for the church like now like you felt for Jesse in Yosemite? Holy cow. Like, that's huge. We've got 11 people right now, right? We've got just a handful of people, and they're friends. It might measure up to 100 or so. And Jesus just says, tag, you're it, whole world, that's your job. Be my witnesses. Oh, by the way, this world that you've got to be my witnesses to, when I just tried it for three years, they killed me. <laughs> so you're supposed to get to the end of Genesis, and then you know what Jesus does? Then he leaves. And there's the church, standing there, like little old Adam. Jesus has ascended. He's ascended into heaven. And there they are. Massive job to do. Now, what's Jesus doing in heaven at this point? Oh, this is fascinating. You see, because a lot of us, we're raised in a moment in culture where heaven is this kind of ambiguous, far-off thing. But to the people who wrote this part of the Bible, to the people who originally listened to this part of the Bible, to the Jewish people, to the first Christians, heaven wasn't about a place. Heaven meant to them... The control room of earth. Whenever they read heaven, that's what they thought. Now, the way some of us, when we hear the word heaven, think Casper and floating around and some, I don't know, something we can't wrap our mind around. They did the opposite. They immediately wrapped their mind around it. And they thought that heaven, they believed that heaven was the control room. It's like the CEO's office of earth. It wasn't far off. It was smack in the middle of the company. That heaven and earth aren't two different places. They're overlapping, interlocking spheres 
dimensions of the same reality. And the role of heaven was to be the control room on earth. So when they read Jesus ascends into heaven, what they hear is Ben rose to the top of the company. We use the word he went up in the same way they use the word ascend as a metaphor for promotion, increasing power, greater authority. So when in, in chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven, they see that as Jesus is now the CEO for earth. So in our psalm, psalm, chapter, psalm number 2, when we read a little earlier that the nations are raging and plotting against God in heaven, what is he doing in heaven? Laughing. Why? Because he's in the control room. He's laughing because he's the CEO. He has the power. He has authority. And the kings that think they have the power and think they have authority, they're wrong. The point is not that Jesus went a long way off. It's that Jesus was enthroned as the king of the world. He calls the shots. So when Acts chapter 1 says Jesus ascended, he's the CEO, he's the ruler, he's in charge. This is something we can't ponder too deeply. The one who's enthroned in heaven is ruling over the earth. Do you believe that? When you look around this earth right now, do you think Jesus is in charge? Think he's running the show? See, that's the conundrum that we get. So we get to the end of Acts chapter 1, and we have two conundrums in front of us. One, we're feeling bad for the church because like Adam, they're, they are totally inadequate for the task that they've been given. And two, we look around at a world, and we say, okay, I know I'm supposed to believe uh, as a Christian that Jesus is in charge, but he's not doing such a good job. And with all of that in our minds, we get to chapter 2 of Acts. Here's the church. Got its job to do, to bear witness. Looking like Adam, inadequate. So God does for the church what God did for Adam. He sends what? A helper. Same word. A helper. Because the church is inadequate. Because the task is creation-wide. Because we can't do this by ourselves. So God sends a helper for the work. What's the work God has given the church to do? What was the work God gave Adam to do? To be royal priest. To reflect the wisdom and beauty of God into creation by drawing out of it all of its latent potentialities in ways that are good and proper and fitting, in ways that lead to the earth's flourishing and thriving, and, and, and to draw all of the goodness and praises out of the earth back to the Father. That was the job of Adam. What's the job of the church? To be witnesses to what? Look what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 22. To be witnesses to the resurrection. Oh, here's where you, you've got to be very careful. If you think the resurrection is fundamentally proof of Jesus' divinity, 
then your job is to go out to the world and to argue with people that Jesus is God. But if you've been reading the story, then the resurrection, proof of his divinity, absolutely, but massively more than that. It is the first fruit of the healing of all creation. Our job is to go out into the world as people of hope. It's a difficult hope in this world we live in. Our job is to move out into the world and bear witness that God has taken hold of the world. And he has defeated evil. And he, Jesus, in his body, rising from the dead, is the first fruit in every death we meet has the potential of resurrection. Because the king has taken hold of this world again. We are to go out into the world and say so much more than Jesus is God. We are to say to the rulers, kiss the king. You are accountable to him. Yield to the king. That is our job. Our job is to speak the truth to every usurper. Did you hear that at the end of our psalm? Psalm chapter number 2. When it says, serve the king, the Lord, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is what we're supposed to bear witness to. This is actually the truth. Under those dark and dense sayings of Jesus in our gospel passage. John chapter 15. Where Jesus declares that when the Spirit comes, He will prove the world is wrong about what it says sin is. That sin is not believing in Jesus. The world gets confused about what real sin is. That the Spirit will come and prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness. What's right? And about judgment. Who? And what will be judged? That's the Spirit's job. The world is getting it wrong. Our rulers are getting it wrong. And the Spirit will call them to account. That's what Jesus promises in John chapter 15 and 16. But here's the million dollar question. How will the Spirit do that? How exactly does the Spirit confront the world? That's the point of Pentecost. The Spirit doesn't do this work of proving the world wrong independently of those to whom the Spirit is given. It would be all too easy to read John chapter 15 and 16. Oh, Jesus is going to send the Spirit and the Spirit's going to do this work in the world. And we just sit back on the sidelines passively watching God do His thing. Has God ever in the entire history of the biblical story worked in the world apart from humans? You see, that's the reason Genesis 1 and 2 are so important. God put His humans in the world to do His work in the world. Couldn't do it on his own, Adam, so he provides a helper. God now brings the church along, and he's carrying on this great story after the climactic moment of Jesus defeating death and darkness and evil. And he says to the church, now get back to it. But we can't. We need help. The groom needs a bride. 
So he gives us the Spirit. The Spirit calls the world to account through the church. Through you and through me, speaking the truth, bearing witness. Keep reading in the book of Acts, and this is exactly what happens, right? The Spirit falls down on the church in Acts chapter 2. They're not bad. They're doing exactly what they should be doing. They're reading the Bible, and they're praying, and it says very clearly they're in one accord. Before the Spirit comes, they're doing everything they should be doing. They're studying scriptures, they're praying, and they're in one accord. They're worshiping God. They're treating each other well. But when the Spirit comes, what is the difference? The difference is they go public. It blows them out of that room they were sequestered in. For all, if you, if you track with some of the Christian news in America, there's a guy, Rod Dreher, who's talking about something called the Benedict Option. For all that he's saying, he's wrong on this point. The Spirit blows the church into the world to engage the world. That's what happens in the book of Acts. They're blown into the world. And you know what? It's absolutely peachy and rosy, isn't it? Everything goes their way. None of them die. Nobody resists them. No, it's not. In fact, back in John chapter 15, Jesus says, hey, you're going to need the Spirit's power because they're going to excommunicate you and kill you. This is an awful thing to be excommunicated in a communally oriented society. He says, you're going to face the most incredible thing you can face. And then he ratchets it up. They're going to kill you and they're going to think they're doing right. So when we look at them in that upper room, they've got jobs to do to go back out into the world as true humans, bearing the image of God, getting the project back on track, reflected, angled mirrors, bearing God's grace into the world and the world's praise, offering back up to God. But this is so difficult. It is so hard. They need a helper. And when they get the helper, they're propelled out into the public. And sure enough, the difficulty plays out on every page. But there's the church in suffering and in victory, being faithful, moving forward. This is our job. This is Pentecost. Pentecost is we can't do it on our own. We need God's help. Teenagers, you can't bear witness effectively and perseveringly apart from the Holy Spirit. Parents, how can you make it? How can you endure? How can we pull this off? We need the Spirit. So Church of the Incarnation, we need to pray that God will fill us with the Spirit so that we can move out into this world as peacemakers, as health bringers, as community builders and joy bringers and culture makers and homemakers and wisdom bringers who are contributing to the flourishing of Harrisonburg. The whole point of Pentecost is that the way the CEO moves with authority is through the church bearing witness. 
not as victims, but as those who are on the right side of history. No matter what the moment in history indicates. The whole point about Pentecost was that the disciples were okay prior to Pentecost. They were doing Christian things. But they couldn't do their whole job. They needed help. They needed the helper. The father answered the prayer of the son and sent the spirit, the helper. And now they moved out to speak publicly. That Christ is risen. Death has been defeated. The victory is available. New life can exist. This is the vocation that every single one of us has. Every single one of us. From children to teenagers to adults to people who are in their prime. Including Phoebe, who's about to be baptized. And Patrick and Glenna and Davy. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. He celebrated the coming of Jesus in vitro. How much more can we pray now in the light of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus that these children and all of us who have been baptized into the family of God, all of us, that we would with boldness and grace bring the message and reality of God's kingdom into this world. We need the Spirit for this. The good news is God is generous with his gifts. Pentecost. Pentecost is when the presence of Jesus with his disciples becomes the power of Jesus in his disciples so that they can bear witness to Jesus in a world that makes it easy sometimes and very difficult other times. This is the birthday of the church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.